The views and opinions expressed by individuals on the following program do not necessarily reflect those of the network, Guys Guy Radio, and its platforms. It's Guys Guy Radio. Here's your host, Robert Manny. Welcome to Guys Guys Radio. This is your host, Robert Manny, welcoming you to the show where men and women can be at their best and everyone wins Guys Guys Radio. We're here to inform you, inspire you, empower you, and get you to think, feel, and who knows, maybe even act by virtue of the journeys, stories, experiences, and insights of the guests I bring you each and every week to the show. And once again, this week is no exception. Today, we're going to talk about something a little bit different on Guys Guys Radio. We're going to talk about a movie, an iconic movie from 1967 called The Dirty Dozen. We're going to talk about the making of that movie via a book called Killing Generals by Dwayne Epstein, best-selling author of Lee Marvin Point Blank. We're going to talk about the making of The Dirty Dozen, the most iconic World War II movie of all time. It's a real guys, guys movie. I know it's violent. I know it's about war, but it's a movie that somehow has lasted over 50 years, and it's been legendary status and so many stars in it, male stars, and it's one of these movies that is just all guys. So, hey, you know what? The name of the show is Guys, Guys Radio. I used to love this movie when I was a kid. I watched it recently, and I'm like, wow, this one has really held up over the years. And it, this, it, the movie just didn't reinvent the men on a mission war story, but it blew the genre to pieces. It's a ragtag team of crazies, murderers, misfits, defying authority, mocking the military. It was shockingly violent and gritty for the time period. It's nothing compared to what it's on the screen now on a regular basis. And it still managed to deliver action adventure, and a no-holes-bar Nazi killing at the end of the movie. And America was in a turbulent period back in 1967, and this movie just came out of nowhere with some stars who weren't that well-known then but became uh, legends after this movie, including the great Lee Marvin and my special guest, Dwayne Epstein. Excuse me. He wrote uh, the book Lee Marvin Point Blank, which was a bestseller in New York Times. And he, he took the role that was uh, originally talked about for John Wayne, but for a number of reasons. John Wayne didn't want it, and the director didn't want John Wayne. And Lee Marvin got this movie, and it really catapulted him to the next level. He had just, uh, he had just been in the process of winning his Oscar for Cat Baloo, and they got him signed up for a very reasonable price, price for Dirty Dozen. And he was just on kind of the launch pad to take off for his career. He did a great job in this movie. We've also got, of course, we've got... Uh, Let's see, Jim Brown, it's his first movie. Remember the running back from the Cleveland Browns? Some consider, including myself, Jim Brown, to be the greatest NFL football player of all time. He's just an amazing athlete and very good actor, and this was his first role. And then we had uh, Trini Lopez, the singer, who had the song out at the time, Lemon Tree. And uh, he he was in the movie, and uh, his movie career didn't go too far, and he got written out of the movie, and there's a story about that that we'll get to. We had the introduction of Donald Sutherland, who really wasn't well-known, and he got, the, uh, he got a small role in the movie as one of the Dirty Dozen, which became a launch pad for him also because he was given a scene that was not supposed to be for him, and he really killed it. And he became a star and got into the movie MASH from here. We also have the great, iconic Charles Bronson in a typical Charles Bronson role, very uh, you know, stoic, uh, man, action, macho, 
And Charles Bronson is so tremendous. And uh, he's great in this movie also. We've got Ernest Borgnine from, he was on, uh, I think he was on leave from McHale's Navy at the time and shows what a range of acting he has. Uh, he, he played a general here in The Dirty Dozen. And let's see who else. Robert Ryan was in the movie. Um, the great John Cassavetes, uh, who actually became one of the great directors, independent movie directors after this film. And um, who else did we have? A lot of other terrific actors in, uh, in here. And there were, there were no actresses uh, in, in the movie. I think maybe one or two had a quick, quick, uh, quick moment or two on screen. But this was a, a true guy's movie. And uh, let me see who else. I'm just flipping through here because there's so many stars here. Richard Jekyll, who's been in a lot of war movies, was in it. Um, again, Ernest Borgnine. Let's see, who else? Uh, Clint Walker, who played Cheyenne in, uh, in uh, the TV show, the iconic 60s TV show. And of course, Telly Savalas, who became Kojak. And he played a, uh, a character called Maggot in the movie, which is a very kind of crazy lunatic. And all in all, it was a terrific movie. And the book and our discussion, we're going to get into the background, the novel, what the movie came out of, the process of uh, selling the movie as a concept in, casting it, the director, um, the uh, screenwriting, the launch, and what happened with all the stars and how they got along, and all of that, all here on Guys Guys Radio. So we're going to bring on my special guest, Dwayne Epstein, and we're going to talk about The Dirty Dozen. It's Guy's Guy Radio. Okay, Guy's Guy's Radio, the interview portion of our show that's shown on, uh, on YouTube and Rumble. And we're going to talk about the, one of the greatest war movies of all time. Very underrated, highly controversial. The name of the movie, and it's one of my favorites, and it's a real Guy's Guy movie. It's called Killing Generals is the book, but the name of the movie is The Dirty Dozen. And who doesn't remember that all-star cast and the incredible story of the ragtag outfit of renegades dropped behind enemy lines trying to do a major power play uh, for, for the army to get themselves out of the pickle they're in individually and also to kill some Nazis, if you will. So my special guest is an author of a great new book. It's called Killing Generals. Dwayne Epstein, uh, The Making of the Dirty Dozen, the most iconic World War II movie of all time. Uh, Dwayne is known from his recent book, which is a New York Times bestseller about Lee Marvin, uh, really the main character in Dirty Dozen. The book, that book is called Point Blank. And let me tell you a little bit more about Dwayne. He's the author of Lee Marvin, Point Blank, and other biographies. And prior to writing biographies, he contributed to articles, to film facts, a bunch of magazines, and he's written a, kind of a biographies on a lot of players in Hollywood for a younger audience. And he's an interesting guy, and he's also a New Yorker who's been moved out here to California, and I really enjoyed the book, and I'm so thrilled to have Dwayne Epstein join us on Guys Guys Radio. Dwayne, welcome to the show. Robert, thank you for having me. Well, I, I tell you, I love the movie. I love the book. Let's start right at the beginning. Um, this was a plucky, oddball, unconventional, and controversial war movie. It got mixed reviews, and it turned into, you know, financial gold as well as kind of a legacy that people and all guys 
talk about the dirty dozen till this day. I remember in Sleepless in Seattle, Tom Hanks had a moment with a, another character and they were getting teary eyed about when Jefferson, the character played by Jim Brown at the end of the movie, dropped the grenades in to where the uh, Nazis were partying. And <laughs> it's just yeah. so over the top and people didn't know what to make of it. But let's start at the very beginning. What drew you towards, well, tell us a little bit about yourself and then what drew you to this project? Well, um, I can tell you it, 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 it came rather organically having done the book I did on Lee Marvin, um, which there's a, a bit of a gap going on because I did the Lee Marvin book. It came out in 2013 and I was raring to do another project. And at the time I had floated the idea with my publisher, Schaffner, Tim Schaffner of Schaffner Press, about doing a book, a biography on Charles Bronson. Um, and at first he liked the idea, but then I had to take some time off to work on something else. And when I came back to it, he said, we're moving our company in another direction. Now you can keep the advance, but we're not going to go with the Charles Bronson bio. In the interim, my agent, Mike Hamelberg, passed away. And Mike Hamelberg was one of the great human beings of all time. He wasn't just an agent. He was a good friend and a good human being. And the loss of Mike Hamelberg kind of put me in, in, in free fall. And I, and I was looking to do other projects, and it's been a while. And then a gentleman by the name of Lee Sobel contacted me. Uh, he's an, a literary agent, and he has a very interesting history. And he contacted me asking me if I wanted to do a project. And I was like, you know, that was weird because agents don't contact authors. Authors you know, look for agents. And when I told that to him, he said, why, why are authors so cynical? Anyway, um, I, looked, I looked into him. Uh, in terms of his background and and whether or not he was legit or a scam artist. I, I'm friends with him on Facebook. Are you really? I never oh, cool. met him, but I see his posts and he sees mine. And for, for whatever reason, we're we're connected. Well, that's how that's how we connected was uh, via Facebook. And after I uh, checked him out and I found out he wasn't a scam artist, we talked. And he asked me what I'd be interested in writing. And if, when I mentioned a Bronson bio, because I had been doing a lot of research, he said, nah, I'm not interested in that. And then we started talking about different movies that I would be interested in writing about. The first one he said was Point Blank. Uh, which Great movie. Marvin. Love yeah, that me, movie. Me too. I, I like that movie. I don't love it. But when it comes to Lee Marvin movies, my all-time favorite has always been The Dirty Dozen. When I mentioned that, sure. Lee said, yeah, Lee said, you might be onto something. Put something together and let me see if I could, uh, what you call it, move it around to different publishers. And it took me about a month to put a proposal together. And once I did, the reaction was almost immediate. About two weeks after I sent him a proposal, we had an offer from Kensington Press. Luckily, the senior editor at Kensington Press was a huge Dirty Dozen fan. So that helped. And it went from there. Okay, that's, a, that's an interesting story. So how long, how did you go about the project? How long did it take you to... Uh, interview all the people who were alive who had been connected to this movie because it's been close to 50 years now. It's 1967, I believe it came out. Yep. How did yep. you kind of put together your hit list on who you want to talk to and th those that were alive and get the information that you needed to make this a juicy read, which it is, by well, the way. I want to just tell everybody I read this book and it's terrific. And if you like the movie, The Dirty Dozen, any question you ever have about The Dirty Dozen is answered in Dwayne's book. And it's very <laughs> readable. Great job. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Listen, you can say that as much as you want. I've got no problem with that. <laughs> um, 
It's interesting. At prior, you know, I had done some initial research anyway in order to get the proposal done. But from there, and I should add that um, I was given a very small window of time to turn in the manuscript, about nine months. Usually you get um, like a year to a year and a half. So I, I had to hit the ground running very, very fast. And I wasn't really quite sure where to go and what to do. Luckily, early on, I had mentioned the project to a friend of mine who's also an author, a woman by the name of Beverly Gray, who wrote a wonderful book about the making of The Graduate called Seduced by Mrs. Robinson. And I kind of used her book as a template about where to go and what to do next. And in the conversation I had with her, she mentioned in passing, she had done an interview with the the original author of the novel, The Dirty Dozen. Now, he passed away, I think, in like 2016. And the interview she did never got published. It's an unpublished interview. She asked me if I wanted it. And I was like, are you kidding me? Of course. And that was the jumping off point for me. I, she got some wonderful insight from him about how the uh, the novel came about. Um, and because you read the book, you'll know. The first, I'd say, two or three, he's... I, I quote him throughout let, the book. But the, right, but, let, let me hold, let me, uh, just for the benefit of our uh, audience, the name of the author is E.M. Nathanson. And uh, he, right, he wrote but the, everybody, the, the everybody novel. Everybody called right? him Mick. Okay. Right, he wrote the novel. Everybody called him Mick, Mick Nathanson. Because his first name was Irwin, and who right. wants to be Irwin? Anyway. And it's a cool um, story about how the idea, the concept came to him, right? Oh, absolutely. You know, it's funny. A lot of people think The Dirty Dozen was, ba- and to this day, it's like an urban legend was based on fact. No, it's not. I can say that <laughs> definitively. He got the idea from a friend of his who had um, who had been in the army as a photographer. And that friend of his was very, very famous. His name was Russ Meyer, yep. the guy who made all those sexploitation films. Yep. But yep. in the army, in the army, he was a combat photographer assigned to Patton. And one of the assignments he had was to cover a group of uh, prisoners that were being trained for a, uh, a, what you call it, a mission behind enemy lines. And he told that story to Mick Nathanson. And Nathanson's response was, when I heard that story, the hackles on the back of my neck went up. Uh, he found it a fascinating tale. And he spent the next two years researching it. And there is, he can say definitively, definitively, excuse me, but there was no real dirty dozen. It was probably what was the, uh, the term he called it a, ba- a bathroom rumor, a, le- a latrine rumor. Um, but in his research, he looked over the transcripts of some of the trials of actual army convicts, and it gave him the background he needed to create the story and the characters that resulted in the novel, which, as anybody who reads the book will find out, is pretty different from the final version of the film. And the script, by the way. The script went through several revisions, including one by Nathanson himself. He submitted a script. In any event, that's where the story came from. But, you know, there were people who who swear that they were a unit within the 101st Airborne. Um, and that's not true. In fact, Nathanson said after the film came out, he was getting calls from people who, who were like, I was a member of the Dirty Dozen. <laughs> Well, weren't there, uh, Dwayne, weren't there a, a group of uh, guys like the Dirty Dozen that were dropped behind enemy lines and were never heard from again? Right. Well, they were called, okay, there was a group called the Filth, uh, the Filthy 13 or, so, or Filthy 15, something like that. <laughs> but they, they were not convicts at all, which is the main point of the story, okay. nor were they um, um, 
they didn't follow the rules of combat. Let's put it like that. They they didn't shave. They didn't bathe. Uh, um, they liked to put on war paint and have mohawk hair, haircuts. And they were very, very disobedient. And they didn't follow military protocol. But they were not, repeat, not the Dirty Dozen. And a matter of fact, on the DVD commentary, even though they tell the story of the uh, Filthy 13 or 15, I think it was, Mick Adams at the time was alive, and he's on record as saying, this is not the Dirty Dozen. You can tell the story. It's an interesting story, but it's not the Dirty Dozen. Got it. So, okay. Um, my special guest on Guys Guys Radio is Dwayne Epstein. He wrote this wonderful book. It's called Killing Generals, The Making of the Dirty Dozen, the most iconic World War II movie of all time. And that's certainly uh, high praise. And it is a fascinating movie because it also, there's a lot of different opinions on the message of the movie. Is it pro-war? Is it anti-war? What are we to make of these guys? How about the the ending where all these kind of, uh, you know, men and women were killed? Uh, and who knows if some of them were innocent or they were just elites or what? But there's a lot going on there. But let's get back to the beginning again and talk about the director. So Robert Earl Aldrich was chosen as a director. He wanted the project, I guess. And he had uh, helmed uh, the at attack, a famous movie with Jack Palance. I remember that seeing that as a kid. I was like, oh, my God, because they ran over his arm at the end with a tank. And it was just right. wow. And I think he directed Combat, the TV series with Vic Morrow. Was he involved no. with that at all? Or was that just no. an offshoot of Dirt Dozen? Okay. So no. <laughs> tell us about how Robert Ehrlich got Aldrich got this gig. Okay. Work like this. One of the people I was able to find an interview who's still very much alive was the producer of the film, a gentleman named Ken Hyman, who also later ran Warner Brothers, um, Warner Brothers Seven Arts. Anyway, it wasn't easy to find him, but I eventually did. And once I did, I tell all my friends, how come there's no Jew famous Jewish detectives? Because <laughs> I, was able, I was able to find him. And once I did, he lives in England, he's retired. <laughs> Um, he's 93 years old, lucid, and and had great stories to tell. And he explained to me how he had hired Robert Aldridge to direct. He had worked with Aldridge previously. And um, Robert Aldridge had directed Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. And Ken Hyman was the producer on that. And when he was thinking about directors who would be good for a project like The Dirty Dozen, he immediately thought of Aldridge, called him up, and they worked it out. Aldridge actually wasn't very happy with some of the things that uh, took place prior to him being hired for the film. Actually, Aldridge had tried to buy the rights to the book when the book first came out, which is about two or three years before the film was made, but MGM beat him to it. Mm -hmm. Now, once he was assigned to the film, one of the first, and Hyman said that Aldridge is great to work with. He's a straight shooter, he, you know, no BS, but he could also be a big pain in the butt. Mm -hmm. um, because he's very stubborn, he's very much a maverick, and once he wants to do something, that's what happens. There's no argument with him. He's very strong-headed. Anyway, um, Aldridge didn't like what Hy Hyman had approached John Wayne to play the lead. Luckily, John Wayne turned it down. Aldridge hated that. You know, you went ahead and talked to John Wayne before you ever talked to me. I don't like that. But that's in the past. Let's move on. And they kind of worked together from there. Now, how did, uh, why didn't, uh, from what I read, unless I misinterpreted, he didn't want John Wayne either. And John Wayne passed on the role because he didn't like the mixed messages that were sent out or he didn't really like the Dirty Dozen and their tactics. Tell us about how Aldridge's view of John Wayne uh, being in the film, being cast beyond the, you know, you disrespected me type of thing in terms of the process. And also 
why John Wayne wasn't a good fit and why Lee Marvin, who ended up getting the role, was a perfect fit for this. Well, Aldridge wrote in a memo to Ken Hyman, um, I don't like the fact that you approached John Wayne. And I just, you know, he goes, I like John Wayne. I'm a fan of his films. His, po- his politics don't matter to me. That's his mother's problem. I just don't think John Wayne is right for this movie. Um, and it was based on the fact that John, when Ken Hyman sent the, uh, that version of the script, which is not the final version, but a version of the script to John Wayne, John Wayne had a very funny response. Um, and like, by the way, like Robert Aldridge, I, I will say I like a lot of John Wayne's films. I think he's a wonderful actor. But John Wayne wrote Ken Hyman by saying, I don't know who wrote this script, but whoever it is, I'll bet he's a sandal-wearing, long-haired uh, um, protester of a war he should be fighting in instead of protesting. That was John <laughs> Wayne's take. What, what I find interesting is the fact that the script that John Wayne read was written by a 66-year-old Oscar-winning veteran <laughs> screenwriter. So, yeah. So it was, tell, let, let, let's talk about that for a moment, Dwayne, if we may, with the script, because as yeah. as you know, as a, as a writer, when a book gets turned into a movie, people think you just take the book and you write a screenplay, a shorter version of it. That's not true. You have to really find one idea, one core thread, and that's, that's what the movie's going to be based on. And a lot of the book falls to the wayside. Right. In the process of the, the Nathanson script and then the rewrites, what, what happened to the script in terms of a storytelling standpoint? A lot. Um, what happened was the script that Nunnally Johnson wrote was acceptable to Ken Hyman, who gave it to Aldridge. And Aldridge told Ken Hyman, you know, this is a great script for 1945. This is 1966. So we got to uh, do something about that. And what he did was he brought in another writer to revise it, a guy named uh, Lucas Heller, who was kind of a, um, a stock writer for, for Aldridge. He, he rewrote Whatever Happened to Baby Jane and, sub, uh, um, and several other of Robert Aldridge's better films. And he made some changes. And in the script I have, that it shows what the, revisor, what the revisions are and what they were dated. And on, on, the date, uh, on the revision date, you could tell that's what Lucas Heller had done. Something, by the way, that very upset um, um, Nunley Johnson, for whom The Dirty Dozen wound up being the very last screenplay he would write. And he always said he never saw the film when it came out because he felt like an expected father who was waiting to have his child born and not know if he was the father. Mm -hmm. So he didn't want to see it. Anyway, um, some of the things that was done was um, there was a subplot of two female characters that were in the book and were very much involved in the book. One of them was the late a woman who owned the property that the Dirty Dozen were training on, and her name was Lady Margot, and um, she apparently was having an affair with Robert Ryan's character of Colonel Everett Dasher Breed. All of that was taken out completely. Then there was a woman who was a barmaid at a local pub in London that uh, Lee Marvin's character, John Reisman, would, would see and have liaisons with. She was completely written out. She's gone. Um, Things like that. And there were also certain scenes that were in the book that they were planning on doing, but um, they were running long on schedule and, 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 and it was going over budget. So what they did was they took that whole sequence of the, parach- the parachute school that um, was run by Robert Ryan, that Lee Marvin brings in uh, the Dirty Dozen, 
I've seen memos back and forth of Ken Hyman and Robert Aldridge arguing about, we've got to get rid of this, we've got to get rid of that, the movie's going too long. So what they did was, there were scenes in that sequence, they just kind of shortened mm-hmm. them. Yep. The interesting, like the choice of Lee Marvin, I want you to get into that, and also we mentioned sure. again your wonderful book, Point Blank, Lee Marvin, about his life and just an interesting, really interesting actor. So his character, Raisman, I'm quoting from the book, um, I'm not sure who said this. Maybe you can help me out. But Reisman has to be the most cynical, suspicious, sophisticated, anti-authoritarian, anti-establishment, mean, miserable son of a gun that anyone has ever seen. (laughs) Way to clean that up. Yeah. (laughs) In a movie. His estimation of his own character would be that it only has two flaws, an irrepressible sense of humor and unremovable love for his fellow man, both which he considers weakness and humor. Fantastic. That was that was Robert Aldrich. He said that he he said that in a memo to Ken Hyman in his attempt to let him know how we need to revise this script, make it less like a gung ho war movie of the forty when the war was going on, and more like an updated version of the way people think now. And uh, and that was his assessment of, of the character. Yeah, kind of an anti-hero aspects of that leading into right before the 70s, he was doing the anti-hero thing, which is pretty cool. So right. what did Lee Marvin think about this role? And did he and his people see this as an opportunity to really take him to the next level, which it yeah, did? Absolutely. Matter of fact, it was they got him at the most perfect time in his career in that not only was it a hit, but while they were filming the movie, he went back to L.A., for a couple of days to get his Oscar for Capaloo. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, had they hired him after he got his Oscar, he would have been, you know, priced out of existence. But they got him for a lot less money. And after The Dirty Dozen came out, he was a superstar. He gave the one t- in the same year, uh, Point Blank came out, which he made right after The Dirty Dozen. So it was a one two punch that made him the number one box office star in the country. And his career took off. Absolutely amazing. And he was a kind of an interesting guy. I guess uh, uh, alcohol got the best of him in the long run in some ways, even though he was an incredible talent. And even alcohol got in the way in one of the final scenes of the movie when he and a couple other guys are going over the bridge leading away from the chateau that's just been blown up. Supposedly, he showed up so much in the tank that his fellow co-stars were were uh, re- really peed off at him like Bronson was like what are you doing because yeah, he was Bron- so loaded that where they were afraid that he was going to drive the truck or something off the off the bridge well Bron- Bronson Bronson had reason to be upset with him and he was the one who was the most upset um Bron- it was it was the final uh, thing they had to shoot and it was a night shoot and they had built a chateau that they were going to blow up that had already happened and then they had to get out and that half that giant half track and they were waiting and waiting for Lee and uh, producer Ken Hyman went to find him and he knew where he was. He was in a British pub called, I think it's called Belgravia or something like that. It's a famous British pub. And when he got there, he said, Lee Marvin was laying on the floor singing happily because he was drunk. And it was one of the few times he was drunk on the set uh, during the shoot. And he said, he scooped him up, put him in the limo, poured coffee into him, took him to the set. And the reason why Bronson was so upset was it was the end of the movie and Bronson desperately wanted to get back. The whole movie was filmed in England. Mm-hmm. Bronson desperately wanted to get back to LA to marry uh, Jill Ireland. Right. Ra- rather ironic that she's British and she was in LA working on Amazing. a TV show. Amazing. And Bronson who was born and raised in Pennsylvania was in England 
filming the Dirty Dozen. So when Bronson, when Marvin finally showed up, Charles Bronson looked at Marvin and said, "Lee, I'm going to effing kill you." And apparently, Ken Hyman jumped between the two of them and said, "Charlie, whatever you do, don't hit him in the face." Because, you know, we've got close-ups. Got it. And he, he eventually separated them, and they got the shot. So let's yeah. get in. Let's get into some of the other casting because we've got a lot of ground to cover, Dwayne. It's just absolutely fascinating. Name of the book again: Killing Generals, The Making of the Dirty Dozen, the most iconic World War II movie of all time. Where uh, the, the movie was really shot in three parts. It was uh, the recruiting and identifying the Dirty Dozen, training them, and then going behind enemy lines for their right. mission. So, right. in terms of the casting, let's get back to you mentioned Charles Bronson, the possibility that you were going to do a book on him, and I'm sure you had done some research. And he is an iconic movie star in that he was huge all over the world, but he wasn't a big star in the States until I guess this movie came along. So, tell us about how. No, okay, you're going to correct me on that. I like that. Tell yes. us about Charles Bronson. How did he get into this movie? What did it mean to his career? Okay, Bronson and Marvin had very similar careers. As a matter of fact, they made their film debut together in uh, the early 50s. And they both served very long apprentices in the film industry. In reality, Bronson's apprenticeship was a couple of years longer. Bronson had continuously done steady work in both film and TV, but he wasn't a major star. And that includes, he was in his early 40s when he did uh, The Dirty Dozen, and that includes that. His best work, and he admitted it himself, and his favorite films were always an ensemble movie, like The Great Escape, Magnificent Seven, The Dirty Dozen. Now, after The Dirty Dozen came out, he got very good reviews, but he still hadn't really, you know, made it. And what he did was he stayed, well, after he married Jill Ireland, he went back, you know, he stayed in Europe, and Jill Ireland proved to be a wonderful uh, um, mentor. Muse for him, right? Muse to his career. Because a lot of the films and projects he had turned down previously, when when, when he was approached to do them after they got married, Jill Ireland said, Charlie, make this movie. It's going to make a difference. One of my favorite things about that was he turned down all of the Sergio Leone spaghetti westerns. It's amazing, because he would have been great. I mean, obviously, Eastwood was great, and it made his career. Took it, you know, from Wagon Train, he became, like, superstar. But I could see Bronson in that. And then Bronson did the uh, Once Upon a Time Time in the West. And that was the the one when Leone approached him. Jill Ireland talked Bronson into doing it. And it, it ran in Europe in theaters for, like, five years. It was so popular. And then after that, he did a series of films in Europe that were vehicles especially made for him that are actually very good films, and he's very good in them. Ride Around the Rain, uh, Someone Behind the Door, Farewell Friend. They were all very original takes that helped create his screen persona. Now, he became this monster superstar in Europe, and that's when he came back to America, continuing to make films in which he was the lead, but they were films that were um, kind of European-like. They were a uh, European finance. Mr. Majestic and uh Well, not that one. That one that one was a few years later, but I'm thinking of movies like Chateau's Land and Red Sun. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, that was a few years earlier. And then by the time he did Death Wish, mm-hmm. that was it. He was a superstar from then on. And um it you know, he was Charles Bronson. Yeah. There was actually nobody else like him. To me, the ultimate uh Charles Bronson movie was Hard Times with James Coburn. And I would have loved loved to see him and Lee Marvin together in that film. That would have been good casting also. But Coburn was great. 
And uh, it was a series of escalating challenges in the bare knuckled world. It was really about a lot more than just fighting. Uh, It was about masculinity and about the establishment and about corruption and so much more. But anyhow, Charles Bronson. So he's in there and his role was what in the Dirty Dozen? He was, uh, I find this interesting. I I had interviewed a very Bronson and Jill Ireland wonderful lady who told me she would ask Charlie about his films. He, you know, Bronson was not a fan of his own films and he didn't like talking about his career, but she would ask him what his favorite films were. And she, and he told her only two, the great escape and the dirty dozen. And, and it's interesting in that in both films, his character has a coal mining background. Um, uh, and in real life, Bronson came from a coal mining community, um, a town called Ehrenfeld, Pennsylvania, which was called, uh, scoop town uh, by the people who lived there. And I talked to some of the people who grew up with him. Interesting stuff. In any event, I, I find it interesting that his two favorite films, he played a character who had been a coal miner. Mm-hmm. And, and wow. I mean, he, he, he certainly identified with that character. And he himself said he didn't think the movie was going to be a hit, The Dirty Dozen. But what he liked about it was the ensemble cast. And he also said, he was slightly embarrassed to be in the film because he said everybody else in that movie was a better actor than I am. Um, and I find that interesting because I think he fit perfectly. Yeah, I, I agree with you completely. Um, so let's get into some of these other characters because uh, through the casting, some of the characters had breakout turns in this movie that turned them into superstars. Uh, you bet. Talk about, um, and we, we're, we're a little jamming on time, so let's go fast, but Donald Sutherland. He got the role of Pinkley, and then it was kind of a, not a minor role, but it wasn't a lead role. And then there was a scene where he has to impersonate a general. And he, tell us the story about how he, how he took over from Clint Walker and what happened. Yeah, well, it was written for Clint Walker to be played. And during rehearsal, um, Clint Walker felt it was a demeaning thing for him to do because his character was a Native American and he wanted to offend Native Americans. And so Robert Aldridge just, pointed his hand across the table and said, you, with the big ears, you do it. And, and, and Donald Sutherland told me that story because I got to interview him too. And so that's how he got the role. And what's interesting is the effect that it had on his career because he was up for the role of um, Hawkeye Pierce in the movie version of MASH. But Altman was, Robert Altman wasn't sure Donald Sutherland could do comedy. Sutherland had his agent send the Dirty Dozen to Robert Altman. And when he saw that scene, he went, all right, you can do it. Amazing, it, amazing. It made Sutherland's career. Now, another one, big one, John Cassavetes, who is best known now, looking back, not just for his acting, and he was the only um, cast member nominated for an Academy Award. And an interesting story about he lost out to the same person who was also in the film, right? Um, uh, George Kennedy, I believe. So the Cool Hand Luke. Yep. And hey, both great roles. So yeah. John Cassavetes played Franco, kind of this deranged guy. And when you watch The Dirty Dozen, no matter how many times you watch it, you get riveted. You don't like this character. And this is so amazing about his acting is you don't like Franco, but you can't stop watching him. And it's an amazing role. And then he became this auteur, this independent filmmaking who kind of brought European style filmmaking to the to the masses in the States. And he saw, he was one of the first actors, and forgive me, I don't, I don't want to be doing your interview, but he would do a, a money-making movie, and then he would do his intermake, his own independent movie uh, that he could get financed so he could manage his career that way, which seems to be the standard of how a lot of the big stars are doing it in Hollywood now. But tell us about John Cassavetes, Wayne, if I haven't told the whole story yeah. already for you. No, no, you, you, you covered a lot. There's just a couple of things um, to add to it, one of them being that, um, number one, he's my favorite thing in the movie. I absolutely love Cassavetes. I don't 
entirely agree with the fact that you don't like him because he's such a petty punk. He's so fun to watch. And I, you know, and I liked him. I liked his character and I liked the way he played it. More importantly, he got talked into doing the movie by producer Ken Hyman. And what Ken Hyman wound up doing was creating the, the career that Cassavetes had. He had an interesting backstory in that Cassavetes was kind of blacklisted in Hollywood after he got in a big fight with Stanley Kramer. Not, I don't, I don't want to go into that. And he hadn't worked in a while. So Ken Hyman said, look, John, I know you've got another movie you want to make and you're working on it now, but you run out of money. Take the money we're giving you from the Dirty Dozen and use it to finish your film. And at the time, the movie was Faces, which when that came out, also got several Oscar nominations. Mm -hmm. And that's what started the trend. It began with the Dirty Dozen. He did it again with Rosemary's Baby, which mm -hmm. he did like a year or two later. The thing was, Cassavetes didn't get along with Roman Polanski on Rosemary's Baby, but he did get along very well with Robert Aldrich. And he, he said he's the best director I ever worked with. I love working with him. Amazing. One of the, one of the things Cassavetes did during the filming of the movie is when they were rehearsing or trying to figure out who does what, even though it may be written a certain way, when Aldrich wasn't sure who should do something, Cassavetes said, I would immediately shut my hand up. You know, I'll do it. You know, and he, he would get, you know, for him. all the other actors would get upset, but hey, he got a lot more work that way. Amazing. And, and, and it shows in the film. He's terrific. Okay, let's get into because so many great uh, characters here. Um, all right, Telly Savalas. He was this was pre Kojak, and he thought he was yes. kind of the star of the film, and he played uh, <laughs> this uh, very uh, kind of maggot. southern maggot, the southern Baptist kind of, but he had a sex thing going on, and he was just a really another one of these like scary type characters. But you can't stop watching him, and this was pre Kojak. Oh yeah, um, the thing I found interesting was when you read the novel of uh the dirty dozen they they did this thing of compacting some characters now the character of archer maggot that telly savalas plays in the book is actually three different characters there's one character who's a southern bigot there's another character who's a religious fanatic and there's another character who's a sexual deviant they took all three of those characters <laughs> <laughs> they took all three of those characters and put it in maggot and to show Love you it. what a great actor Telly Savalas is, he made all three of those attributes believable in one character. It did. It and did. Yeah, very he complex. was wonderful. Yeah, okay. Exactly. All right. Let's, we can't not get to Jim Brown because Jim Brown was considered like the greatest football player of all time. I remember I was uh, probably, I don't know, 10 years old or something. And I, I thought he was the greatest. I still think he was the greatest pure football player I've ever seen. And he was at the height of his career, late 20s, I think. And he was going to yep. retire early to pursue a career in Hollywood. He was going to do one more season. And then the Dirty Dozen shoot went long. So what happened? Well, what happened was the, um, it did go long. They were encountering all kinds of problems, uh, the weather mostly, but a lot of other problems as well. And it's interesting. He was supposed to be back for um, training, I think, in like um, August or September. and he, it was being speculated in all the sports pages at the time, will Jim Brown be back for the 67 season of the NFL? Will Jim Brown actually retire? Will he just be fine or, or what? Now, what's interesting is with all the speculation, had these sports report, I'm not saying they were racist necessarily, but had these sports reporters been a little bit more aware, they would have seen an article that Jim Brown co-wrote for an African-American newspaper called the L.A. Sentinel. And in the article, the headline is, I'm retiring from the NFL. 
And this was before he even started shooting, um, um, what you call it, The Dirty Dozen. Now, he had been interviewed later after all that happened for a wonderful documentary Spike Lee did about Jim Brown's career. And he said he was wavering. But once he was given an ultimatum by the team owner of uh, the Cleveland Browns, he said, you know, I was ready to retire, but you give me an ultimatum. That's a big mistake. I, I'm walking. And he said, I walked away proud. I, I, you know, I was the MVP of the year. We had won at the time the Super Bowl. Uh, I, I had a, he said, I had a running back record of yardage that I don't think anybody will ever beat. So I was fine with leaving. And what happened was, in the middle of filming The Dirty Dozen, he let the world know his intentions because he held a press conference in which he announced his retirement from the NFL. A surprise, now, right? That was a surprise, yeah, right? Yeah. Well, to people who don't read the LA, LA right. Sentinel, which of right. course is almost everybody. <laughs> and what what he wound up doing was giving the movie a whole lot of free publicity. What is, you know, people, people, what is this great movie? I mean, how great could this movie be if the greatest football player in the NFL is retiring to make it? So that helped. And it also established his career because it, it wasn't his first film. It was his second film. He had done a Western a few years earlier. But after The Dirty Dozen came out, he became a kind of a, a superstar within a given genre that at the time was called exploitation, which were films of which he and Fred Williamson and Pam Greer made some kind of you know low-budget action films with leading African-American stars as kind of living superheroes and mm -hmm. they were extremely successful and i'd venture a guess his movies were the most successful so mm -hmm. the dirty dozen launched his career got it okay uh let's go to uh ernest borgnine who was at the time on leave from mikhail's navy to show what a great actor he is he did the comedy with mikhail's navy the always exasperated captain uh mikhail and uh and then he goes to dirty dozen and he played the role of the general in a, in a kind of a different way. And I really liked it. And you can, I was watching the movie the other night and I, just his, his eye, his eyes and his facial expressions say so much. I mean, he's such a terrific actor from the time he did Marty all the way on. I think he's kind of underappreciated. Tell us about his role in the dirty dozen and how he played it a little bit differently. Yeah. His character, he plays it with a lot of bluster and, and, and appropriately. So like hands but, on. Uh, right. Right. Yeah. And, um, it's funny in in the novel, his character isn't really in it all that much. He's in it more in the movie, actually. Um, the character that Robert Weber plays, uh, uh, General Denton, um, he's actually his character is more in the novel. But they took what Denton was supposed to do, did do in the book, and made it for Ernest Borgnine to do. Now, what's interesting, you mentioned Mikhail's Navy. That part of part of the uh, um, what you call it of uh, the scheduling was so it wouldn't conflict with Borgnine's TV schedule. And they shot his scene so he could get out of there to get back to do Mikhail's Navy. Got and all, and Ernest Borgnine always said, I, something I think is fascinating. He worked with Robert Aldridge a lot. Aldridge liked him and worked with him. And he said, I owe the Oscar I got for Marty to Robert Aldridge. Because Robert Aldridge was at a party one night in the 50s with uh, the screenwriter and the director I think it was Delbert Mann of Marty. His last name is Mann, M-A-N-N. -N, and, and the writer was Patty Chayefsky. And they were bemoaning the fact that they couldn't get Rod Steiger from Marty, who had done the TV show, because he was filming Oklahoma. And, and it was just a conversational thing. Who, who do you think we should get? And Robert Aldridge told him, look, I've worked with Ernie Borgnine. He's a terrific actor. 
you'd be a fool to pass him up. And so they auditioned Ernest Borgnine while he was making um, Bad Day at Black Rock, and coincidentally with Lee Marvin. And that's how he got the role. Amazing. And yeah, he and, and Aldridge used him a few times. Matter of fact, in, in one film called, not a very good movie, called The Legend of Lila Claire, Ernest Borgnine was kind of Robert Aldridge's alter ego in that movie. Aldridge had a personal habit of always wearing a suit and tie to work, but he would not always tie his tie. He would just have it hang across his neck and use a tie clip at the bottom to keep it in place. Ernest Borgnine did the same thing as a movie producer in the movie Legend of Lila Claire. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty funny. The minute I saw that, I knew he was doing Aldridge. Okay, a couple more. We can't get to them today, but Robert Ryan, a, a conic star in the movie. Um, Trini Lopez, whose role got cut because he, I think he wanted more money, and Frank Sinatra was trying to convince him to focus on your music career, and that's why he got, uh, and it was at the height of Lemon Tree, so I think he got his neck snapped in the movie, so he was written out of it. <laughs> yep. And uh, Ralph Meeker and uh, Richard Jekyll, so a lot of other guys. So let's talk about what happened when the movie came out and what was the kind of collective consensus on it? Was this anti-war? Was this pro-war? Why is this? And why is this, from your work, Dwayne, such an iconic, legendary movie that has legs up till today? Everybody loves it. It's fun. It's over the top. Well, I can. T- and it's 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 yeah. like uh, it's uh, politically incorrect too. Very, <laughs> very. <laughs> Uh, matter of fact, when the film was in production, they they had battles with the censors at the time. The production code was about to change the following year, but it was there were still issues about you know dialogue and scenes and and um, and they argued back and forth about the use of certain racial epithets and and about that was actually one of the reasons why the scene of uh, uh, Major Reisman's character having sex with the barmaid was cut out because okay. the censors hated it. Right. So but, what happened when the movie but, came out? I, I'm, forgive me for uh, interrupting. When it came out, what was the what was the takeaway? With the was the studio surprised? The critics were kind of like hot and cold on it, and yet it's kept going. What what is the magic in this movie from your perspective in terms of why it's iconic? And I, forgive me, we're running out of time, so I just want to get to that most important question for you. Right. the re- The response was definitely mixed. Um, some some film critics, the critic of the New York Times, Bosley Crowther condemned it beyond belief, calling it a sense of hooliganism and 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 all, all these other detrimental terms. Um, some some critics liked it. A lot of critics liked it, actually. But I think the one who summed it up best was Judith Christ, who made the point that in this movie, they're showing you that war is, is, is a psychotic business. So why not have psychotic fight it? That, that would make the most amount of sense. And that point it. was driven home, yeah. And the other thing about the movie as to why it's lasted so long, you know, America loves, uh, always have loved outlaws, folk heroes, nonconformists. And that was really the basis of the entire project. And it kind of created a cottage industry. There were, years later, there were TV movie sequels. There was a short-lived TV series. And almost from the moment the movie came out, there were ripoffs. Got there it. were you know, a thousand versions. Of that. Mm-hmm. So Dwayne Epstein, Killing Generals, The Making of the Dirty Dozen, the most iconic World War II movie of all time. Where can we learn more about you and your work and get the book? Well, you can find the book on uh, uh, the publisher's website, Kensington Press, or it's also available, I'm hoping, I haven't checked yet, in pretty much every uh, bookstore chain. 
or Amazon. It's it's selling very, very well on Amazon. And also Barnes and & Noble and uh, Books A Million and, oh gosh, everywhere. Fantastic. And you are can, can be, you have a website or I know you're on Twitter. Um, I had a website when the Lee Marvin book came out, but it's now defunct. I'm going to have to create another one. But right now, I am, am indeed on Twitter and Facebook, and I write and blog about um, killing generals all the time. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on Guys Guys Radio. We had so much to go through. Forgive me if I pushed it along a little bit, but I just love the book. I love your work, and I really enjoyed it. And thank you for being here, Dwayne Epstein. Thank you very much for having me, Robert. I truly enjoyed it. It's Guys Guy Radio. All right, that was a lot of fun. Dwayne Epstein, so much work he put into uh, writing this book about the Dirty Dozen. And what an iconic movie. What a lot of fun it was. And if you haven't seen it recently, guys, check it out. Because remember that, that the big scene in it when Jim Brown's running at the end, he plays Jefferson, he's dropping those grenades into the uh, through the grates to blow up the uh, cellar of the chateau where all the Nazis are partying and people had a lot of problems with that uh, scene if that was too violent was that considered killing potentially innocent people and at the time it was uh, it was controversial nowadays <laughs> so much killing on screen now I don't think people would bat an eye at it but it's a fun old school movie no CGI great acting performances across the board and it's worth checking out, as is this book, Killing Generals by Dwayne Epstein. He's a terrific writer. He did a great job on it. So, guys, guys, radio, what did we learn today from this discussion with Dwayne? I think we learned that it takes a village to make a movie uh, from the concept, uh, the kernel of an idea that uh, uh, the uh, original author of the novel had, Nathanson, and to get that into uh, the, the point where it gets picked up by a movie studio and then different people bidding on it, and then the process of uh, writing the screenplay, extracting the core of the idea out of the, out of the novel and putting it into a screenplay, which becomes kind of a different animal overall. The picking uh, of the, the casting of the director, of the lead, in this case, Lee Marvin, and all of the actors, and just so much more, that when the financing, and the release date, and all of that stuff, and it really is amazing how movies are made. So if you want to know how uh, the, from an idea from conception to making a movie is made, this is a great book and a great example, and it's a fun movie also. Killing Generals by Dwayne Epstein. So Guys Guys Radio, we're here every Wednesday evening at 8 p.m. Pacific time on KCAA Radio here in Southern California, 106.5 FM, 10.50 a.m., the show rebroadcasts on KCAA every Sunday at 6 p.m. Pacific time. They do streaming, listen live, download, however you want to listen to it. And KCAA has their own platforms that you can catch the show on. Our podcast, Guys Guys Radio, is downloaded in over 100 countries. We're on all the major platforms. It launches every Thursday. And so you can catch that, as well as our YouTube and Rumble, which are the video versions of the show. It's an, the interview itself you can watch, just the interview, though, not the entire show. So we have our featured interviews on YouTube. We call it Guys Guys TV. You can catch it there or just use my name, Robert Manny, M-A-N-N-I. And then we're on UK Health Radio. I wonder how this one's going to go on UK Health Radio every weekend. 
uh, four times a weekend, and it's the world's largest talk health radio station in the world. It's uh, digital, so it's on the internet, and they do a great job and a lot of terrific pre presenters there. I also write for their magazine, Health Triangle Magazine. Each month, a new issue comes out, and you can catch my first four articles there about aging as a choice I've been writing about. As well as if you want to catch me on my website, robertmanni.com, I've got over 300 blog posts about life, love, the pursuit of happiness. You can also download three free chapters of my novel, which is the source material of everything Guy's Guy. It's called The Guy's Guy's Guide to Love. It's called A Sexy Romp Through the Fast-Paced, High-Stakes World of Madison Avenue. It's been called The Male Successor to Sex in the City. It's a rom-com from the male point of view. It's a lot of fun. It's fast. It's frothy. It's sexy. I think you'll have fun with it. And you can download three free chapters on my website and then pick it up in the physical or digital form wherever you purchase your books, probably Amazon. It's probably easiest to pick it up online, even if you want the physical book these days. So Guys Guys Radio, I'm here for you every week. We've got a whole bunch of terrific guests lined up throughout the rest of 2023 and beyond, and I can't wait to get to it. I want to thank all my, my guests who've been on the show, over 575 guests I've interviewed. I want to thank my wonderful producer, Chris, who always has my back, as well as Ryan, my strategy lead. lead. And most of all, I want to thank you, my growing tribe of guys, guys, fans, and uh, followers. I really appreciate it. Appreciate it. And if you enjoy the content and guests I bring you each and every week to the show, please follow, subscribe, rate, review wherever you consume the show, wherever you consume your podcasts and YouTube, etc. Thank you so much for your support. I'll see you next week. And until then, like I always say, guys, guys, finish first.